0: Hi team, welcome back to Becoming a Doctor. I'm Kira, a third year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a second year medical student at the University of Cambridge. Welcome back to our podcast series where we bring you honest insights about life as a medical student, discuss current affairs and talk to guests to inform and motivate you on your journey to becoming a doctor. Before we jump into this episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media at how to become a doctor with doctor Svelt, Svelte-DR, where we'll be posting behind the scenes, doing live Q&As and much more. Welcome back everyone. Today we're here with some fantastic guests and we're going to be talking about the NHS structure. So without further ado, can I ask Helen to introduce herself to our listeners first, if that's all right?
1: Yes, thanks Lucy. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm a senior fellow at the King's Fund, which is a charity and think tank um, that works to improve health and care. And I, I work across policy and communications at the King's Fund, and I also host our podcast, the King's Fund podcast, which I'm going to plug right now. So anyone listening out there who wants to know more about health and care policy, leadership and other aspects of the health and care sector, please listen and subscribe to the King's Fund podcast.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Definitely a great resource to look into, everyone. And An, would you also be
2: able to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yes, of course. Um, Thanks for inviting us on. So I'm hong Ann. I'm the Library Service Manager at the King's Fund. So um, our library is kind of um, devoted to supporting the work of the King's Fund but also anyone who's interested in health and social care policy. So we're a publicly accessible library, reference only, but yeah at the moment we're working virtually like a lot of the world. But um, if you've got any inquiries around um, health and care Policy, so like if you want to find a statistic or need to find some evidence around any kind of new innovations in um, healthcare policy, then we're the team to come to. And I'm also here because um, I am one of the people who was involved in developing our FutureLearn course, which is the King's Fund's first foray into um, online courses. Um, And so myself and Helen and um, our other colleague Ian were all, all kind of working together to develop this course.
0: Yes, and this is an amazing course. So I know a lot of you are now thinking, I've submitted my UCAS application to medical school and I've got these dreaded interviews coming up and I need to know all about the NHS. And I remember when I was applying to medical school, the NHS was just something that you've been brought up with and you know it's the hospitals and you know you go to your GP. But then when you start preparing for your interviews, you go, actually, this is only the surface of what the NHS is. And so I think this is, today's episode is really delving into the structure of the NHS, its funding, and what the NHS is looking like now we've got this massive pandemic on our hands. And so thank you so much for joining us to help us sort of elucidate what all of this stuff means. So I think maybe can we just jump in and maybe start by talking about what the NHS actually is?
2: Sure, so... The NHS, I mean, we kind of refer to the NHS as a singular, (laughs) Um, but in reality, uh, we talk about it as one organisation, but it's also uh, comprised of many, many organisations. We also talk about it, you know, as the NHS, but it looks different in devolved nations as well. So the work of the King's Fund is really focused on the NHS in England, which is now um, different to how the NHS looks in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland. Island as well where it's not called the NHS but yeah the the kind of healthcare system there so essentially sort of uh, I think you really kind of captured it um, in your introduction Lucy is that uh, people's experience of the NHS is really mediated by the contact that they have and obviously uh, the contact is really for a lot of people it's through general practice so um that's where you kind of experience the NHS or other primary care services. But um, in reality, it is a big beast. So it's one of um, the largest employers in the world, for example, it's in the kind of top five largest employers in the world. So it's, it's really kind of a massive industry and that encompasses all the sectors of care, but also if you think about um, all the things that need to go on behind the scenes as well. So um, the administrative staff um, that help the kind of service run, HR, people like porters, um, catering staff, uh, librarians, I think very often people don't know that like most hospital trusts will have a library so it is really big and then you've got kind of um, organisations like national bodies who are responsible for setting the direction of the service and a lot of the strategic thinking so you might have heard um, about a lot of them um, sort of over the course of the pandemic so obviously Public Health England nhs england and improvement um and also if you go further up then you've got the central government department which is the department of health and social care so it is really really large um, and whilst it covers a lot of healthcare i think we're keen to kind of point out that all of healthcare isn't just the nhs either so if you think about things like public health a lot of that, so that's kind of split between the NHS and local authorities. And also if you think about social care as well, you know, there's, there's kind of a bit of a blurry line between those and that doesn't necessarily take place within the confines of the NHS.
0: Definitely. And I think you can also make transitions between those social care aspects which are dealt with maybe with the local authority and the NHS care part when you've got patients moving between them can make things things very difficult. And then even within the NHS, things are further subdivided. So it it gets very, very complicated. Yeah. Can we maybe talk about what the NHS itself, the parts that that covers? So maybe like the, the mental health and the physical health
2: aspects? Yeah, sure. So mental health provision within the NHS does. So we talk about it. Uh, like it a separate sector sometimes but also it's important to clock that mental health service provision happens within the community it happens within general practice and then it also happens within the, the acute sector as well so if you think about sort of mental health trusts and I think there there is something about in terms of policy there's been a recognition that there needs to kind of be parity between mental and physical health we still very much, talk about them separately whilst that we acknowledge also that there is a strong link between the two and that kind of uh, that's kind of really evident in the way that mental health is treated across all the different sectors but we talk about it as a separate entity um, and that you know um, there is potentially a lot to be done in terms of patient experience um, and outcomes if we did treat them a bit more equally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I remember I'm currently working as a healthcare assistant in a mental health hospital. And when I was interviewing mm-hmm. for that role, it was a lot about the integration of mental and physical healthcare and how it's always our mm-hmm. priority to think of, think about someone's physical health and their mental well being at the same time, because they're so often interlinked that if you overlook one, then you can completely miss a massive problem on the other side. And so it's really important to sort of try and convert your attitude to thinking of them as two separate things and try and focus as the whole person and I think that's what this yeah. whole holistic care I mean I know people throw that word into their personal statements of medicine all the time but holistic care really is bringing everything together all of those different things that makes up a person and making sure that you're focusing on that person as a whole to improve their care So, a very good point <laughs>
2: So, before you started your role there, like, was there any? So, has anything surprised you, or have you kind of really learned anything that's kind of hammered that home? I
0: don't know. I think there's a lot of different things. I think I was working recently, and one of the things that irritated me is that one of the service users needed to go to a physical health hospital to go and get um, one of his physical health problems that we saying in inverted commas looked at. And that was really frustrating because I think. When you've got a service user who is an inpatient in a mental health hospital, having to move them to a completely different environment can be really detrimental to their care. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that really frustrated me is that there was no sort of link for them. And I guess that it's very challenging because you can't always have all of the things that you need in one place so that you can help everyone. And you might not have an MRI machine in a mental health hospital for various reasons. But it, yeah. I think it's really challenging. I think I don't I don't really know what the solution is because that sometimes there does need to be a division purely for maybe logistical reasons of there's an MRI machine here we can get all the patients to come to the MRI machine but is there a way to bring the MRI machine to the people who are in a different hospital I don't know (laughs) what do you think
1: I think between Mental and physical health, not particularly. But I think one thing I would just add is, so I think GPs play a really important role in terms of acting as gatekeepers to the rest of the system. And that's something we've kind of designed into the system. The NHS has that designed in. And that GP role is something that um, isn't present in all healthcare systems across, across the world. Some have it, some don't. But when other systems, when we talk to other systems internationally, they often tell us if they don't have that GP role, just how important they think it is. And they want to put that in place often, because they see that GP role as being somebody who can coordinate the different bits of the system and bring it together and try to take that whole person view, Lucy, that you were talking about there. And then I guess the other thing just to flag is that obviously health and kind of wider wellbeing goes far beyond the NHS and And social care and mental health and public health, it goes into all kinds of aspects of our lives. And I think so, there's something called social prescribing, which GPs do and often referring to other services. And that is, um, I think, something that kind of tries to take that holistic whole person view. And then the other thing I'd just flag is that a lot of times, I mean, I don't think this is the case between mental and physical care, but. Lots of times you see issues in the way the system is structured that are down to funding and the way funding flows in the system that creates kind of um, separation and makes it hard for um integration, full integration to happen. And that particularly is an issue when you look at social care and the NHS and um, which are completely differently designed in terms of funding. So on the one hand with the NHS, it's the point of use with social care. It's not free at the point of use. Um, it's a completely different system. The money is raised completely differently. Lots of it is um, privately paid by users themselves. And and public health, even the budget is, is separate there too. And that means that because those kind of funding flows right at the top are different, it can be quite difficult to make, to make things integrate.
2: Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And I think like Helen's first point about like just thinking more widely about care as well that links into kind of what you're saying about social prescribing is that you know some of the kind of areas of focus are around things outside of the realm of the NHS so um, things like you know having great access um, and support for mental and physical health through your universities that's a really crucial part but that's an area that the NHS does not have control over so it's about recognizing actually it's like the whole environment it's it's a lot of things feed into your health um, and your health outcomes are not only linked to your access to healthcare I think there's evidence to show that quite a small portion is linked to access to healthcare I think the estimates are around like Ten to twenty percent, depending on the studies you look at. So
1: I totally agree with what Hongyam is saying, and it just made me think about yeah, totally right. And the kind of you know actually how much healthcare services contribute to our health outcomes, and actually, and um, you know when you look at childhood obesity and other similar issues, you're looking at the kind of the role of the environment, the role of how town planning has happened and meant that uh, and licensing. Um, laws you know around alcohol for example you know how many fast food outlets are we are we living right by how much green space is right there is there other opportunities for us to exercise are we exposed to air pollution those are things that really impact on our health outcomes um, and obviously excessive being able to access healthcare services plays an important role but it definitely isn't the real
2: yeah I think it's really interesting think about how many as you mentioned how many things really do impact health and that kind of really links into that whole patient-centered care with, you know, behind each person, there's so many other things that influence them, as you were saying, like their environment as well, that isn't just you know, their access and the actual kind of healthcare that you can provide as as a doctor.
0: Yeah, I actually had a really interesting lecture recently that was talking about why life expectancy rapidly increased in the 20th century and looked at all these different things such as wealth and how much food you could afford and whether that would make an improvement or the introduction of antibiotics and different treatments such as that. And I think they looked at it and they realised that it wasn't any of these massive sort of advances in healthcare, but it was actually just diffusion of knowledge and people learning that breastfeeding was really, really good for children and it boosted their immune system meant they didn't get sick as often. And it was just a really, really eye-opening lecture for me, realising that yes, being a doctor can help people, but is it gonna be the thing that saves the most amount of lives? Whereas maybe talking about childhood obesity earlier, maybe sort of intervening and making sure that everybody knows the dangers of this, leading on to the future is possibly more important.
1: Yeah I totally agree and and I was just thinking about so you know obviously your this podcast is about how to become a doctor um, and you're thinking about your career future career as a doctor and that's a really important role. I think you know speaking to some doctors in the past I've heard them express frustrations. This is not an argument to not become a doctor. By the way, definitely go and become a doctor. But, um, <laughs> but I've heard some some people in the past express frustrations about, you know, their inability as doctors or healthcare professionals to deal with or tackle the real roots of somebody's ill health. So they're coming into an appointment, presenting with whatever condition or symptom, and the doctor knows that at the root of that. This person can't afford enough food and electricity. This person can't afford to live in accommodation. This person has, has a kind of whole array of, of issues, often that the NHS and the GP um, struggle to tackle themselves. And that bit can be very frustrating. And I think we work sometimes with the states and we heard from a couple of um, accountable care organisations and a particular health system called Montefiore out in the States. And I remember somebody senior telling us about, you know, one of the things that they as a as a health system, as an accountable care organisation have invested in is dealing with the whole patient in that kind of holistic way, recognising, so I think there was, you know, they gave an example of an old person who kept being admitted into hospital. And obviously the kind of ACO, accountable care organisation model is incentivized so that um, the money kind of works to keep people out of hospital. So if, if an old person keeps coming in, it's a failure um, of the kind of care package. And as, as it should be considered a failure of the care package, it's not good to keep being admitted into hospital. But, uh, you know, in this system, Montefiore, they look um, specifically at what what is driving why that person keeps coming in. And for example, one patient they were working with, with they realised that um, his wife had recently died and he'd never he he wasn't used to cooking for himself he didn't do the shopping he wasn't feeding himself and he was completely isolated and he kept falling and that was why he was being admitted to hospital but there are all those kind of contextual factors around somebody's health and their outcomes that has so that that goes so far beyond health services and until we as a health service can start to i guess look at health in the round and target some of those driving contextual factors we're not really going to be able to sort out the the full health of the person
0: yeah I mean it's so amazing that the NHS and the services that that includes are free at the point of use but if as you said you can't complete that circle and make sure that you're sending a person back to a, a better housing situation for this particular person that we were talking about then that that circle is just going to keep coming around and they're going to be admitted again you're going to send them back to somewhere that isn't suitable for their living situation and they're going to be admitted again and is that wasting our resources can we better direct some funding to support that person what what do we do about this i don't know these are the questions
1: great question and what do we do about it and yeah i think um i mean there's you know there's definitely moves in the nhs to integrate services better and you've got these things called ics integrated um, care systems that are trying to bring services together in a local place to um link up and, and provide a care that's more focused on on the person and doesn't make them have to for example explain their stories on multiple occasions in different points of contact across the system but I think there's a long way for us to go
0: definitely I think if as we teach more people about that as they get into medicine into any of the roles in the NHS then it will help bring that process forward hopefully <laughs> Um, I think it might be quite good to we talk about how the NHS is actually funded because I feel like we've mentioned it in quite a few areas but we probably haven't broken it down quite far enough maybe what do you think?
1: Okay so the NHS is funded mainly from general taxation and then it's supplemented a little bit by national insurance contributions and then there's a very very tiny proportion that comes from patient charges and that includes kind of charges for prescriptions and dental treatment so I guess we say free at the point of use but technically it's not completely free at the point of use Uh, but it's largely free at the point of use very much largely free at the point of use and I guess there's also just a a, to flag or worth worth noting that individual NHS organisations can then are free to generate additional income so they can charge for hospital car parking for example and treating private patients selling some of the land they own so they can do that too and and that contributes to some of the to some of the money that the NHS uses and then I guess at the kind of quantum level so the level of funding um, that the NHS gets any given year is set by central government through spending review and we're about to have another spending review apparently so the Chancellor has said we're going to have a spending review in November So we should see that process happen. And that that spending review uh, estimates how much income the NHS is going to receive from sources such as user charges, uh, national insurance, general taxation, and then allocates the funds across the system.
0: Okay. And... I have a question. I know we're going to talk a bit about NHS Brexit later, and this might be a very controversial topic, so feel free to shut me up. But I remember when this whole Brexit campaign was, was going on, there were some buses that had a very big sign that said 350 million pounds to the NHS. And then I feel like the next day there was this big interview and then they said, oh, no, we're, we never promised 350 million pounds for the NHS. So I was just wondering, how do you think funding of the NHS is going to change with NHS Brexit on
2: the horizon? So I think more broadly speaking, it will be about what Brexit does to our economy, because funding for the NHS is intrinsically linked to our economy because that's what comes out of the spending review. So that I think that's kind of where you have to keep an eye on how that impacts the NHS. But then the NHS is also part of the economy as well. So any impact on the economy will be felt in other places. So what does it do to things like drug prices, for example, or the cost of labour, things like that will also therefore impact the NHS. So I think it's quite hard to say oh, we think that the kind of the amount of funding might drop by X because of Brexit, because it's just this kind of maelstrom of like moving parts that will impact on the NHS. Is that about right,
1: Helen? Yeah, totally. And agrees agree with everything you've said. And then I guess just thinking about, you know, the, 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 the big issue that you've highlighted, and it's the important one, is how much we have to spend in the NHS is in part dictated by how the economy is doing, the wider economy. Brexit will have an impact one way or another on the economy and then just you know I guess we're now in a situation where perhaps even more important than Brexit is the impact that Covid is having on the economy and that is going to to impact on the decisions that politicians take and obviously it's always a political choice how much money the government spends on different aspects of public services but it's you know I guess there's there's how much you're willing to borrow how much you're willing to take away from the NHS or education to spend on the NHS and which which of those sectors trumps. And so really difficult choices. And when the economy is not doing as well as it might be, as it might have been, that makes those choices more difficult.
0: Yeah, I that's a really, really interesting point, because I feel like in this whole pandemic, I, my focus has been on the health side of it and thinking about how the NHS is stretched to its limit in trying to treat all of these different people, the number of ventilators we have on that side of it. But if we're treating so many people and people can't work because we're in a lockdown or whatever, and the economy is really, really suffering as a result of that, but we need more more money and staff than ever before, how, how does that balance if we need more than ever, but we have less than we ever did?
2: So that's
0: making me panic a little bit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're regretting asking us to come on. <laughs> but it is circular. And if you think about things like the impacts on the economy that also has an impact on health outcomes and therefore the demand on the health service as well. So, you know, what, what does mass unemployment do to kind of like the general mental health of a large chunk of the population, for example? Um, so it, it is all a bit circular and complex. And anything to do with like sort of such a big complex system is is always going to be really difficult.
0: So now that we've talked about funding quite a bit, I know there's another big NHS hot topic, which is the privatisation of the NHS. So could you talk a bit about what that means? Because it's just a bit of a key word that everyone sort of throws at you. And I don't really know what exactly that would mean.
1: Yeah, so really good question. And um, yes, it is a hot topic and always comes up. In discussion and I think it's a really a good question from you about what does it really mean because it is used quite loosely and hence I think can be bandied around without people kind of really getting what it means so I guess the first thing to say is that private companies have always played a role in the NHS it's nothing new and then that kind of frustrating me it's quite hard to work out exactly how much the NHS spends on the private sector because central bodies don't hold detailed information about the individual contracts that then kind of NHS providers or commissioners hold with different service providers. So it can get it can be quite difficult to get the precise answer. But the King's Fund, we've done some analysis, and our analysis suggests that there isn't any evidence of privatization in terms of that privatization is increasing. There is privatization, as in the NHS does pay private companies to deliver some services or play a role, it's not all service provision, Um, but basically the proportion of funding that NHS commissioners spend on private services has stayed broadly the same over the past few years, and that's around 7% of the total NHS budget. But then, just back to your point around what do we mean by privatisation, so It's really important to then kind of factor in that the NHS also spends money on other types of providers beyond private sector providers. So then if you look at the role that um, the voluntary and not-for-profit sectors play in the NHS and also local authorities, which aren't NHS either, if you factor in how much work is commissioned out to them, you're looking at the percentage of the budget rising by 4%, so from 7% to 11%. So that's again. It depends on what type of private. Is it non-NHS you mean when you say privatisation? Is it just anyone who's not the NHS, or is it just the private sector? And then there's also, and this is where I think particularly GPs. Hello, GPs, if you're listening. But um, particularly GPs get get annoyed at this point. But there's also other definitional issues. So uh, you know, I'm not one to say GPs are private are private sector providers, but but some people would argue that if you count GPs, pharmacies, optical and dental services as private businesses, which some of them can be counted as, you're then looking at 25% of the NHS budget being spent on non-NHS providers. So it's all definitional. It's a really important question about what do you mean by privatization? Um, and then just I guess another point about you know that the private sector, whatever definition you want to use, but let's say private. Private private sector <laughs> should that be the new definition? Private private sector, but um, if you're using that definition, I think they can play a really important role in terms of supporting the NHS. So, for example, it's been used usefully in the past to reduce waiting times for planned operations, elective surgery, and that's enabled the NHS to treat patients more quickly. At the moment, you know, private lots of private provision has been um, brought up by the NHS during COVID to enable patients to be treated. Um, You know, private sector isn't bad per se um, and can often provide very high quality care. It plays a really important role. And I guess from the perspective of the King's Fund, we'd say our priority is that patients receive high quality care that's free at the point of use, so that's in line with the principles of the NHS. We're less bothered about the type of provider as long as the principle of the kind of free at the point of use of the nhs the founding principle remains there and then also obviously if if the care was being outsourced to private providers for a cheaper cost and that quality was then being run down we'd be concerned but as long as that whatever provider is delivering high quality care to patients and care is free at the point of use then then the King's Fund is kind of less concerned
0: about that. So when everyone says NHS privatisation, this may be completely stupid on my part, in which case I really apologise, but what I sort of envisioned was something where it wasn't free at the point of use anymore and suddenly I wanted to go and have a GP appointment and I was having to pay an arm and a leg to be seen by a doctor, or maybe a system similar to that in the US and I was having to pay for health insurance that covered all the services that I needed access to. So is it literally just that the funding would change to move more towards these private, private sectors that we've been referring to? Or how would that affect more on the patient level?
1: There's no plans to change the funding model, the underpinning funding model of the NHS. So the free at the point of use bit will kind of bring in more of a US model, as as you're mentioning there about private insurance or there's not even a plan to kind of bring in social insurance model as you see in germany for example the the model that we have here is you know i think from time to time you hear politicians talk probably every five to ten years somebody says oh we should change the funding model of the nhs and then that quickly disappears because it doesn't make any sense to change the funding model of the nhs we have what we have all system all funding models have pros and cons Social insurance has pros and cons. Um, the private insurance model has lots of cons. Um, and I'm sure it has some pros, but it does have <laughs> has lots of cons. <laughs> and uh, mainly it's just, you know, the system we have and what the funding model we have works. It will be hugely kind of um, disruptive to change the funding model that we have. And it delivers pretty good care efficiently through raising taxes and paying for it in that way and there's just I mean no plan to change it at the moment. so that normally privatization it means how much is being contracted out to non-NHS providers of whatever definition you want to use and there's currently no threat of kind of users or service users or patients having to pay at the point of use.
2: I would I would add to that as well that so we, we get contacted by quite a lot of people. So like the library service is kind of like the front, like first point of contact for the fund. So we hear quite a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. around privatisation and we're probably the people who in the fund that kind of hear that the most. And I think a lot of the time, what is at the heart of this anxiety is not necessarily about people having to pay up front, but the concern about the tension between a profit-making organisation providing a public service and whether there is any conflict of interest there and so like I think that's at the heart of like things being contracted out particularly services that are like health service provision providers you do hear it about kind of like other services so you know like things like private companies that provide like I don't know cleaning services or catering services and that probably comes up a bit more where there's been like an issue with those services but yeah I I think it's not that doesn't seem to be the, the the root of the anxiety I think and to pick up on a point that Helen made about like the different funding models is that I think it's important to point out that very often when we have these debates the US gets kind of held up as as the alternative they're kind of outliers they're kind of like extreme models at either end of the spectrum and not many other health systems look like the NHS or the US system um you probably see I think the social insurance model is probably something that is probably more common yeah I'd agree with
1: that I think um social insurance and sometimes the NHS gets compared to the kind of social insurance model because social insurance often ensures free at the point of use and certainly universal coverage often is associated with that model. But yeah, I'd agree, Hongan, um, they're kind of two polar opposites and there's so much in between. Um, and then one thing, so we did some work on looking at different funding models in different countries a few years ago. And one one thing that became obvious when we were looking at the different international systems and then looking at the NHS is that almost all countries use a mix of the different funding models so there's no pure funding model in a country so we say free at the point of use but we're not free at the point of use when you factor in user charges for dentistry and opticians and prescriptions right it's not free at the point of use it's largely free at the point of use we raise money through taxes but we also have national insurance contributions and then for example the US has private insurance but it also has some employer-based kind of social insurance model too And it also has free at the point of use bits and it has user charges and it has so almost every country brings in all the different aspects of funding. So user charges, social insurance, private insurance and general taxation. It mixes it up. Ours is predominantly general taxation, but we have aspects of other bits and it's just the degree other countries just vary those levels differently.
0: So I do have one question now that you've flagged commissioning because I meant to ask earlier. One thing that we always hear is a CCG, and I was just wondering if you could just expand on what that actually is. Uh,
2: so I can start us off, but uh, I think Helen might need to fill in the blanks. <laughs> so commissioning didn't start with clinical commissioning groups. So uh, that's kind of like how we rec- how how commissioning is delivered currently uh one of the primary vehicles in which commissioning is delivered currently so commissioning is essentially sort of the planning and purchasing and monitoring of services um, in health and social care as well so you get commissioning in the nhs in public health in social care with the 2012 reforms ccgs were created as part of those reforms and the idea behind it was Broadly speaking that there should be a lot more kind of involvement of uh, general practitioners and other healthcare practitioners in commissioning because these are the people who have a much closer relationship with their population and can understand their health needs. So previously commissioning was done at a much more regional level or like kind of covering like larger areas whereas CCGs they covered much smaller areas so that was kind of like the general idea behind it. So CCGs are kind of given a pot of money, essentially. (laughs) So the way the funding works is that the Parliament decides how much funding the Department of Health and Social Care will get. Some of that money then trickles down into NHS England um, and improvement. It's important to say that some commissioning takes place at the kind of national level so if you think about things like rare conditions where it wouldn't make sense to think to plan the service provision for rare conditions at a very very local level it needs to take place nationally so um, Organisations like NHS England would start would, would think about that, but a lot of that money that NHS England and um, Improvement receive then gets allocated out to clinical commissioning groups, um, who then decide how to spend this money within their local area. But yeah, previously the the structure looked a bit different, so I think it would have been primary care trust. Uh, it's it's confusing, and um, yeah, it's a very kind of jargony term, <laughs> commissioning.
0: <laughs> okay
2: that's cleared a lot for me thank you
0: (laughs) one of those words chucked around
2: yeah i think the important thing to point out there is that the the kind of commissioning itself is about kind of understanding what the health needs are within like the area that you're commissioning for you know ccgs will use kind of data about the local population to think about what that might look like so an example that we use on the course is like In an ex-mining community, you might see a higher prevalence of COPD, for example. So actually, that might be one of the priorities for the clinical commissioning group in that area, whereas that might not necessarily be the case in in, an inner city area of London that has quite high Asian population. And we know that this group might have a high incidence of diabetes. So actually, you might prioritise services based on that condition and it's about kind of sort of managing those services and monitoring their performance as well because it's a kind of circular it's a cyclical process
0: I, mean, I can see that getting quite confusing because you've got this sort of top-down funding model, but you've got a bottom-up sort of influencing process where the CCGs need to say, OK, well, we need this because we've got this community. But you've got the people at the top saying, OK, well, this is the amount of money we have for the entire country and we've got to split it evenly. So we would not want to be the people at the top. It sounds very stressful.
2: Yeah. And just to say it's not sort of, it's not split evenly, per se, but it's not like... There is a pie and you split it into kind of however many pieces per ccg there is um, a formula to figure out the funding allocation for each ccg and i think they take into kind of account quite a lot of different variables say so things like the size of the population i think they might also consider sort of levels of deprivation and things like that and then maybe
0: just to wrap up everything into sort of a nice neat little bow is to talk about how is the nhs doing at the moment in terms of we've talked about all these amazing things that it's free at the point of use and that's excellent in compared to these other extreme scenarios that we've talked about so um, can we talk a little bit about maybe the other the challenges the nhs is facing at the moment
1: so i guess the big issue at the moment um is covid um and and i guess it's you know obviously inescapable for everyone whether they're in the NHS or thinking about thinking about joining the NHS or just living in in a community, of COVID is is kind of impacting on, on all of us. And I think what's been interesting, you know, obviously NHS staff have worked tirelessly to to get us through this, and we you know, and social care staff, and we're, um, we should we owe them all you know massive debt of gratitude. But I guess what COVID has exposed is kind of some shortcomings that were already there in the system and present us with challenges that we need to look at moving forward so I think you know the first the first big issue that I think has was exposed by COVID is the kind of underlying inequalities that exist in this country and that's something that is going to have to be an area of focus for the NHS as we kind of recover services and come out of COVID if and when that happens of course it will happen but um yeah particularly kind of um we saw that people who've been worse affected by the virus are generally those who had worse health outcomes before the pandemic. So particularly thinking about people from minority ethnic communities and those also those living in poorer areas. So, yeah, it's exposed deep inequalities that existed pre-pandemic. And then the other, another kind of, I guess, weakness that COVID-19 has exposed is, you know, the fact that the social care system has been a little, to some extent, neglected, certainly underfunded and overlooked for such a long time. And so we've seen, you know, um, lots of deaths in care homes and deaths for, for service users, families and staff. And so that certainly will need to be, I guess, revisited and thought about as we move forward and then, you know, there's obviously, as I mentioned before, the staff in, in health and care have kind of worked, have worked so hard to get us through this. But, you know, pre-pandemic, we, the NHS, was suffering and social care, was suffering significant workforce shortages. And that, again, has been exposed by the pandemic. So you know, staff were already under enormous strain. They've now had to deal with the demands of the pandemic. And we've also seen... A kind of disproportionate toll on staff from ethnic minority backgrounds so again you know massive issues there again something that the system is going to need to address moving forwards and then I guess you know coming back to your point about access Lucy so the longest the system pre-pandemic and just before the most recent funding settlement that kind of gave the NHS more money before that. The, the NHS had just kind of come out of a decade of austerity and uh, NHS services, you know, partly linked to that context, were running kind of, you know, right to the max all year round and uh, waiting times, waiting times targets weren't being met and people were waiting longer and longer. Uh, treatment and and that kind of meant that when when the pandemic happened the system was already kind of stretched to the limit and that um, the only option really was to kind of um, stop all the other services to try and focus on looking after people with COVID. So yeah lots of challenges and lots of issues that the NHS and wider health and care services need to be thinking about um, and government and national policymakers and think tanks and you as doctors and medical students need to be thinking about how what what the things are that we how we solve those issues as we come out of COVID.
0: Yeah I think everyone has always been focused on this second wave of coronavirus but I think what everyone sorts of forgets about is that having put all of these services on hold for so many months isn't now we've not just got a second wave of coronavirus coming about we've got another wave of everyone that we had to leave at the point where coronavirus was overwhelming the system and now coming to us again in need of even more support than perhaps they were in march and that's having another massive knock-on effect so it's it's a very very tricky time and i'm not sure how best to manage all of it i think that's the the problem no one's
2: really sure about what best to do (laughs) so one thing i was going to say is that um COVID has accelerated some things as well. So if you think about the, the NHS has had like long-standing ambitions to, you know, deploy technology more efficiently, um, and we recognise that there's great benefits that it can bring to how we deliver care, not only at the front line, but thinking about all the kind of things that it might support that are kind of behind the scenes. And you know, it hasn't moved as fast in the NHS as it has in other sectors, but actually. It has now because of COVID. So if you think about the way that a lot of general, some general, general practices move faster on virtual consultations than it has previously, even though that's been a long-standing ambition. So I think there's something interesting about how it has accelerated some things that we have already wanted to do within the system.
1: And it's nice to end on a high rather than my negativity. so <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I feel like we have covered so, so much in this episode. So thank you so much for joining us, both of you.
2: Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah. And um, check out the Future Learn course, everyone. Go and go and do it. It's um, really, really well designed. And, An and my colleague Ian have put so much thought into making it accessible. Um, and also check out the podcast. Definitely. <laughs>
0: Very, very good resources for preparing for your interviews, guys, so definitely check those out. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did find it helpful, please do share this podcast with others who may also benefit. Make sure you hit subscribe to be notified when our next episode is released. And leave us a review if you're enjoying the podcast. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelled DR, for exclusive quizzes, behind-the-scenes content, and to stay up to date with all things how to become a doctor don't forget to follow at medic Mentor too to learn more about other opportunities to enhance your application please do comment under the instagram posts for each episode if you've got any thoughts questions things you like things we could do differently and what you'd like us to talk about next because we obviously want to do everything we can to support you and let us know and we are very receptive that's all so take care guys have a good one bye